This afternoon, we will focus on the Word of God as confessed by the church in the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's a beautiful thing to begin a new season of church for you with the beautiful words of Psalm, or rather, Lord's Day 1. So there the Catechism asks this foundational question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Number two, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So far, the word of God is confessed by the Heidelberg Catechism. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, once again we find ourselves at the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism. This beautiful book of Christian doctrine was written about 457 years ago, and here we are still enjoying it, still treasuring it, and still benefiting from it. Uh, very quickly after it was written, the 129 questions and answers of this catechism became a bestseller. It was originally written in German but was very speedily translated into all the languages of Europe and pretty soon into the languages of other continents even. It made its way through Europe and eventually it made its way to North America already hundreds of years ago and all over the world to this very day the Heidelberg Catechism, believe it or not, continues to be a bestseller. Uh, one scholar estimated that the Heidelberg Catechism is literally the fourth most published um, book in the history of the world, uh, which is an awesome thing to think about. Uh, today, as we're worshiping here in many other countries on the, of the world, people are gathering around, um, pastors are instructing children, there are adult Sunday school classes being held all over the world, and once again, the beautiful catechism is a focal point. Now, it's interesting from a church historical point of view to realize that in the 16th century at, and afterward as well, many, many other catechisms were written. In fact, if you look at the history of Europe during the Reformation, it seemed that every pastor was writing a catechism for the instruction of his flock. So, thank you. There were literally hundreds of catechisms being written all over Europe and beyond. Um, most of them have been long forgotten some of them are known only by references in other books. Which does lead us to ask the question, so what was so special about the Heidelberg Catechism that made it last? Why was it so exceedingly popular? And why are people still using it today when so many other catechisms have been forgotten? Well, there are several reasons, I would suppose, although you can have your own additional reasons. But first of all, I would say the catechism is, is popular and has always been so because it has a a transparency and a simplicity to it. It doesn't really sound like a book of Christian doctrine. 
It sounds like what it is, a book of comfort. It's very simple, and yet uh, you, can, you can ponder it for a long time. Any, any answer of the catechism, you can ponder. You can see the depths, the profound depths of the answer. So it has this wonderful simplicity, and at the same time, this amazing profundity. And those two things together seem to be very appealing to people. Above all, the catechism is very warm and personal. It's not just giving you a bunch of doctrine. It's giving you Christian truth, always in relation directly to your life. Uh, the catechism is always interested in knowing what's the benefit of this teaching. For, for example, what's the benefit of Christ's ascension? Or what's the benefit of Christ's resurrection? It keeps asking questions about, so what good is this for us? What advantage is there in us? What comfort is there in this? All, all the time, the catechism wants to drive home the personal comfort of all the cardinal doctrines of our Christian faith. Now, people sometimes wonder about whether it's right to have sermons based on the catechism. Perhaps some of you have wondered about that at times. Maybe you thought it's not fitting to, to actually have in front of us some human words rather than the inspired words of the Bible itself. And that's a good question to ask. And don't be surprised if your children ask that question. Certainly I've been asked that question many, many times in catechism. Why do we use the catechism in preaching when we have the Bible? The Bible is the inspired word of God and the catechism isn't. So why do we use the catechism anyway? But think about this. In many churches in our communities, you will have uh, two distinctly different kinds of preaching. You'll have preaching which is textual, so the pastor says, today our text is Psalm 23, and he will walk you through the text. But in other churches in your neighborhood, you will also have sermons that are topical. Where, it's, where the pastor says, today we're going to have a sermon about the doctrine of sanctification, and specifically the work of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of sanctification. It's a topical sermon, and he draws in many different passages. It's not a passage based on one text. It doesn't just analyze and preach one text, but it's more synthetic, and it brings together a lot of texts. And that's really what catechism preaching is. Catechism preaching is simply topical preaching. It addresses a number of topics of Christian doctrine and expounds the Word of God from many different texts and draws them together, puts them into a summary so that we may all be benefited by it. And so we begin this afternoon with the introduction to the catechism. Lord's Day 1 is an introduction to the whole catechism. It sets a tone for the whole catechism. Uh, the key word in this Lord's Day, of course, is the word comfort. And it's very fitting for you as you go through the catechism as a congregation to always expect of your preachers that they will bring out, expound, and drive home to your hearts the comfort of every, of every facet of all the Christian doctrines that are covered. So I bring God's word to you with this theme. Christians confess their comfort in Christ. Christians confess their comfort in Christ. And we'll consider the need for this comfort. And secondly, the secret of this comfort. And thirdly, the basis of this comfort. So the need, the secret, and the basis of this comfort. First, then, the need. You know, it's a fact that many people today would not really say that they have a need for comfort in their lives. Uh, I've noticed that in many conversations over the years with Non-Christian people, they don't really particularly feel a need for comfort. Um, and so if you're offering them comfort, they will say, well, what for? I don't have some big problem for you to bring comfort to. That's not surprising because on the face of things, um, 
people's lives in Abbotsford and Canada and the Western world generally are pretty comfortable. I, I would dare to say you all have a pretty comfortable life. Considered by the standards of history, by the standards even of the contemporary world in which we live, uh, nobody in this congregation is hungry. Maybe you know some people who are hungry, but I doubt very much that anybody in this congregation is hungry. Uh, the problem that we have in our world is not that we have a shortage of food. The problem for most of us is we have too much of it and too much variety, and we're trying to downsize because we know that too much food isn't good for us. We worry about putting on a few pounds over Thanksgiving or over the Christmas break. So nobody's hungry, nobody's thirsty in Canada, at least not in the, in the Canada which, in which we're living today. And similarly, most of you have a roof over your head, I would surmise. And if you don't, you probably know somebody who does that will take you in. And even if you have some financial struggles in your life, I'm pretty sure they're not overwhelming you. You have some kind of a support community. You have people you can go to. You have family. You have friends. You have Christian brothers and sisters. You see, all of our basic needs are covered. And that's actually remarkable. It's, uh, the more you realize about history, the more you appreciate the fact that you live in a remarkable time. It's a remarkable time when everybody has food, when everybody has clean water, when everybody has a roof over their heads, when everybody has clothing. Everybody has these things. It's a remarkable time. And because it's like that, uh, people don't seem to really feel a need for comfort. And so if you go in the streets and proclaim comfort, everybody will say, well, what for? What do we need comfort for? So what is the catechism really getting at? Well, there's an interesting word in Lord's Day 1 that comes again in Lord's Day 2, and it's the word misery. Catechism talks about sin and misery, and there's a correlation between those two things. There's sin, and then there's a misery which comes from sin. But when you look at the original language of the catechism, the word that you find there in German is the word elend. Uh, some of you who know Dutch may, might know the related Dutch word elende. Uh, elende just means miser a miserable situation. If you're in an, a state of elende, that's not a good state to be in. You're not happy, things are not well. And to this day, if you go to Germany and you go to some of the big cities and you go to the outskirts where the slummy areas are, they call those parts of the city a Lendviertel, which means a misery section or a misery quarter. So the, the Bible um, is reflected in this word misery because it has a connotation of being somebody in exile, a refugee, uh, someone whose life, therefore, is not so good. I think we all know people who have had to leave their home country. Um, maybe they're living here in Canada now, or they're living somewhere else in the world. They're, they're refugees, they're exiles. They, they came from Africa, they came from Syria, they came from Lebanon, they came from Sudan, and they found refuge. But from the Bible's point of view, and this is really important for us to understand, from the Bible's point of view, every single human being is by nature an exile. Ever since the fall into sin, the Bible says we've all been banished from the presence of God. We've been banished from paradise, which is our, our, our original home. In the words of Scripture, we are all living east of Eden because God drove out Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He said, you can't be here anymore. This is where I live, but you can't be here anymore. You can't be in my presence because you have sinned, you have become sinners, you are rebels. There's a breach between us. You can't be close anymore. 
So God drove them out. And God prevented their return. He put cherubim at the gate of paradise. Paradise had a gate. You could go in and out of paradise. Paradise wasn't the whole world. Paradise was part of Eden. And Eden itself was just a part of the world. And so God made Eden a special place. Within that special place, he made paradise a place with, with beautiful gardens where Adam and Eve could walk with God and could enjoy intimate fellowship with him. And God said, you can't be here anymore. You have to go out, and I'm not letting you back. I'm putting cherubim at the gate. Imagine what a, what a terrible lesson that was for the children of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve could draw near to paradise. They could tell their kids, that's where we used to live before we did stupid things and rebelled. That's where we used to be with God, and we can't go there anymore. And you can't go there either, you children of ours. Adam and Eve live east of Eden. A theme of the book of Genesis is exile from God. It continues from chapter 3 to 4 of Genesis when, when Cain sinned by killing his brother. God responded again by driving Cain away, even further from paradise. And Cain said to God in Genesis 4 verse 14, Today you have driven me away from the land. I shall be hidden from your face I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Adam and Eve were exiles. Cain was in exile even further away from God. And the theme of exile continues throughout the whole Old Testament. Because what happened to the people of Israel? Well, first of all, God did something gracious and powerful, and he brought them back. Not quite into paradise, but pretty close. He gave them access to himself again in his holy temple. He allowed his people to draw near. They could draw near to God in the temple. They could enjoy the nearness of God, the presence of God. Well, what did they do with that privilege? They abused it, and they rebelled, and they walked away from God. And so God did what? What did God do, boys and girls? Where did he send his children? Where did he send his people? He sent them to, starts with a B, remember? Babylon. God sent his children to Babylon. Babylon was a place of exile. Babylon was not where God was in his glory and his nearness. God's glory and nearness were tied to his temple. And the people had to leave. They had to go away. They had to be far from God. That was the worst thing about going to Babylon. It wasn't a bad country, actually. Babylon was a pretty cool country. It was the most advanced civilization of that time. Uh, the city of Babylon, at the heart of that empire, was famous throughout the world. And it's still famous throughout the world. Everybody who reads a little bit knows about Babylon. So they went to a pretty cool country. But it was a terrible country for them. Because God wasn't there. He wasn't there in his nearness. He wasn't there in his fellowship with his people. They were exiled from the Lord. And you know what was true for Adam and Eve, and what was true for Cain, and what was true for Israel in Babylon is also true for you. This is what you are by nature. You are an exile from God. You are far away from the Lord. Here is the Lord, holy and good and righteous, and there you are, far away from the Lord. And between you and the Lord, there, there's not just a little valley, there's a chasm which no man can cross. That creates misery. That generates what the Germans called a lend. Think of Ephesians 4. The apostle says about people like us in verse 18 of Ephesians 4, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
That's powerful. Ephesians 4, verse 18, people are separated from God. All the people you meet in town who are not Christians, they have comfortable lives. They participate in the Canadian lifestyle. Most of them are doing just fine, but they are alienated from God. They're separated from their creator. There's no bond. There's no communion. There's no fellowship. Colossians 1, verse 21 has the same message. Once you were alienated from God, verse 21, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And so if you listen to the scripture teaching of Ephesians and Colossians, it, it teaches you to look at your society differently. It teaches you to look beyond all the creature comforts which everyone enjoys, the things which you can buy with your money, the things that make you feel happy and give you outward security and material comforts. You, you start to look beyond them all and you see the reality of people, men and women, children, the tragic reality of people who don't know the Lord, who are not walking with the Lord. They're not friends of, of the Lord. They're not enjoying the Lord and his glory. We're living in misery because we're far from God. We become his enemies. We're against God. And that means God is against us too, by nature. Now, of course, when you really get to know your neighbors, even the ones who are all doing really well and are enjoying all these creature comforts, when you really get to know them, and they become a little bit more candid, a little bit more vulnerable with you, a little bit more transparent with you, that's a sign that you're building a relationship. They start disclosing something of their inner selves to you. You find out that no matter what they enjoy in terms of creature comforts, there is something missing, and they know it. They know it. I swear to God, they know it. When you talk to them, and you meet them, and you really expend energy in getting to know them, you will find that they know something is missing. Uh, I would say that all of your neighbors who are not Christians are actually right now experiencing a kind of homesickness. They're homesick for what? For paradise. They don't even know that, maybe. They couldn't, they couldn't phrase it in those terms. They wouldn't frame it in those categories. But it's actually true. They are homesick. And in their blindness, they're trying to deal with their homesickness by stuffing their hearts and their lives with whatever they find handy, whether it's music or art or literature, their job, their career, their relationships, their sensual pleasures, their food and their drink, their holidays, they keep trying to fill the big God vacuum with something other than God and his goodness and grace. But they find out over time that no matter how high their standard of living is, no matter how they're able to fulfill every desire of their heart, there is something missing. There's something missing. And what's missing, of course, is the Lord. So we've seen the need for our comfort. Let's go on to talk about the secret of Christian comfort. In the wretchedness of our exile from God, how can we find hope and strength? Well, the secret, of course, and you know this, you're Christian people, the secret is that God himself has come to us in our state of exile with a solemn purpose to bring us home. God has come to us in exile. 
He came to Adam and Eve after he had banished them. He came to them with promises. He came to his people Israel when they had been banished in exile. What did he do? He even sent Ezekiel the prophet to them. Ezekiel was a prophet in exile in Babylon with all the other exiles. And what was he doing? He was declaring the promises of God and the hope of restoration, reconciliation, the reality of a new covenant that God would, would implement, which would be even better than the old covenant. The secret of comfort is God reaching out to exiles in their sin and misery and coming into that world of sin and misery in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. John, John's gospel says it very concretely. In John 1, we read about the word. It says the word was with God and the word was God. And then it says in verse 14, the word became flesh and lived and dwelt among us. You know what it says literally? It says lived and tabernacled among us. That's what it says literally in the original Greek language. So just like God tabernacled with his people in the wilderness after the exodus, he literally had a tent of meeting and the people could literally gather around that tent and have communion with God. So God has appeared ultimately in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and has tabernacled among his people. Jesus Christ came to this world, you could say it this way, he came into the land east of Eden. He came into the land east of Eden so that he might do what? So that he might ultimately bring us back into Eden, into paradise, into that beautiful reality of knowing God and walking with God. See, every time the gospel is preached in the world, whether here in this established church now, or whether you preach it to your neighbor, or whether an evangelist is preaching it somewhere downtown, wherever the gospel is being preached in the world, every time the good news of Jesus Christ is announced, this is the Lord God in his wondrous grace seeking out those whom he had previously banished. He banished them because of their sin. They could not be where God was. You can't make sinners on a holy God. And now God goes into their misery. He goes into that land east of Eden and he reveals himself to them as a God of all comfort. He reaches out in love to save people from their sin and misery. And what comes out in all of this is the intensely personal nature of the comfort that the church confesses here in Lord's Day 1. You see, true comfort is not in things. It's not in stuff. It's not even in other people. It's not in what we possess. It's not what we own. True comfort is not the result of our own hard work, or our intellect, or our brilliance, our career. True comfort for exiles consists of this. It consists of belonging to that person who is God in the flesh, who came into this land east of Eden to reveal God's grace to us. Jesus Christ is called in the Bible a mediator. You know what a mediator is? Mediator is a priest. Um, in the Roman language, or the Latin language, a high priest was called a pontifex. Uh, a priest was called a pontifex, and a high priest was called a pontifex maximus. You know what the word pontifex means? It means one who builds a bridge. What an interesting name for a priest. A priest is one who builds a bridge, and a high priest is one who does so supremely. A pontifex maximus is a person who builds a bridge from the land of east, east of Eden 
back to God in this paradise, overcoming the chasm caused by our sin. And that person, of course, is Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, dear brothers and sisters, you don't have to wait for the new creation to enjoy this renewed fellowship with God. Already now, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you may have with the Lord God, the living God, the most wondrous, intimate bond of communion. And I'm challenging you this afternoon to ask yourself, is that something that I know about in my life? Do I know about this intimate, personal communion with God? Do I know what that is? Do I treasure that? Do I look forward, for example, to my times with God when I, when I set other things aside and I can devote myself to the word and to prayer and I have my own personal fellowship, we have our own family fellowship, we have our Sunday congregational fellowship with God. Are those things supremely important to me? You see, that's why Jesus came. He came to take you back to Eden and to give you already in this life a foretaste of what that really is all about. In the Bible, Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. He's called the way because he is the way. He's the only way from the land east of Eden back to Eden. He's the way. So you don't have to wait until you die and go to heaven to enjoy this renewed connectivity with God. You can have it through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's yours to enjoy right now. You don't have to have a faraway God that you're kind of scared of and you're afraid he's going to smite you down. No, that's not what God has in mind for you. God wants you to understand that he's a close-by God and you're a close-by child. And between you and him, there is a bond of love and communion that is unbreakable. Of course, there's a lot of sin to deal with in a fallen world yet. We still live in a broken world. Things happen. People get sick. People make mistakes. They commit great sins. We live in a broken world. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's physical illness. There's mental illness. There's depression. There's anxiety. There's bipolar. There are addictions. There are disabilities. There's COVID. There's colds and flus. All kinds of things. People we love die. But in the midst of all those stresses and challenges, we have something beautiful. The reality of belonging to a Savior who died for us, who claimed us, who lives in us through His Spirit, has made us His very own, and has assured us that we will never again go into exile. And you know, that makes you very strong. And the word comfort actually has to do with strength. Uh, if you think about the word comfort, it has the word fort in it. Fort, as in Fort Langley or Fort St. John. And a fort is, is a safe enclosure. You've seen the one in Fort Langley, I'm sure. It's just an enclosure of logs. And in that enclosure, you are safe. You feel strong. Outside, there's all kinds of danger. But inside, you have safety, you have protection. That's what a fortress is, a place of safety and protection. And, and Luther was thinking about that when he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. You could paraphrase that. A mighty comfort is our God. And, and Luther based his beautiful hymn on Psalm 46 that we sang together just a few moments ago. So no matter what is going on in your life, however upsetting it is, you are still in the fort. 
you're in the safe place. You're not far away from God. You're not outside of Eden. You're in the safe place. You're in the Eden of God, with God. And so no matter what is going on in your life, you can say, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Isaiah 12. But how can all this be true? How can belonging to Jesus be the great difference between a wretched life in exile and a life with God? What's the basis of this comfort? It's our last point. Well, in the second and third and fourth paragraphs of answer one, the catechism spells out for us what Christ has done and what Christ is doing that makes him our mighty comforter. Notice what it says in answer one, first of all. This is what makes Christ your great comforter. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. The catechism will have much more to say. But this is the, the main note. This is the main theme of the orchestra of the catechism. Or of the symphony. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Please note the word fully. I really want you to feel the power of that word this afternoon. Fully. He didn't pay just for some. He didn't pay kind of. It's not like you have a $10,000 debt and one of your friends came along and gave you a couple hundred bucks to help you out. Well, it's nice of your friend, but it doesn't really solve your problem. You still have a huge debt. Jesus didn't do that. He fully paid. He paid for all of your sins. He paid for the sins that you did when you were a kid. He paid for the sins that maybe you're not even aware of having committed because you're so blind and dumb sometimes about your own sin. You don't even notice it. Just the casual sins that we commit without even recognizing it as sin. Sometimes we're just not kind to somebody. We're not even aware of it. Or we fail to love someone as we ought to and we're not even aware of it. Well, for all of those sins, Jesus Christ has fully paid. And how did he pay? Here's how he paid. He paid by going in exile. He went into exile. He went on the cross. And what did he experience there? He experienced God forsakenness. He experienced the absence of God. He experienced no love of God, no goodness of God, no grace of God, no nearness of God. On the cross, Jesus felt that God was very far away in his wrath and his judgment, his condemnation. Jesus went into exile. He, he experienced an exile like no one else has ever experienced an exile. Far worse than what Adam and Eve experienced when they were driven from paradise Far worse than Israel ever experienced in Babylon, he experienced the reality of a total exile. He experienced in his own person all the consequences of your sins, every one of them. And he removed them from you. So that's the foundational theme of the Catechism of the Bible. Jesus Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. I hope you reflect on that a lot this week because it's true that many Christians are not living in the full comfort of this full and complete forgiveness they think that somehow they first have to prove themselves somehow they have to show themselves to God somehow they have to get their act together and and really perform well for a few weeks or a few months or a few years and and then perhaps God will take them home from exile but the Bible says no no you are taken home from exile, not through anything you'll ever do, not through your virtue, not through your goodness, not through your moral striving. 
you will be brought home to God in one way only, and that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has fully paid. It's done. Your salvation is a done deal. Everything that needed to be done for your salvation was done a long time ago. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing can be subtracted from it. All you need to do is receive it and say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for this awesome gift of a Savior who fully paid, who experienced the exile which I deserved so that I can be near to you today. And then still talking about the basis of our comfort, the third paragraph of answer one, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. See, Jesus has restored you to God as your Father, and his Father is so intimately connected to you, so aware of you, that he literally knows when a hair falls off of your head. Like, do you know when a hair falls off of your head? I don't notice when a hair falls off of my head, except when I'm having a shower. You see them in the, in the shower. But most of the time, we don't even know such little things about ourselves. But the little things we don't even know about ourselves, God knows. He literally knows. Take it literally. It's not just a metaphor. God knows how many hair, hairs you have on your head or don't. And he knows when they fall off. And the little sparrows in the tree of which there are millions in Abbotsford, millions upon millions of sparrows. God knows all of them and not one of them ever falls down without God knowing. That's the kind of God we have. He preserves us. And that's comforting because you know what? We need preservation. I hope you realize how dangerous your life can be sometimes. The Christian life is not a safe life. It's not an easy life. It's not a walk in the park. The Christian life is a, is a dangerous life and it's a hard life because there are very powerful spiritual forces at work right now trying to bring you down. You have enemies. You have enemies, real enemies. They're, they're people sometimes. They're institutions sometimes. But most of all, you have spiritual enemies. And they are really working hard. They're, they're working overtime to bring you down. They're trying to take you out as a Christian believer. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to get terrified because the catechism talks somewhere about how we have sworn enemies. Sworn enemies. You know what that means, a sworn enemy? That's an enemy who says, I take an oath that I will not rest until I take that person down. Would you like to have an enemy like that in Abbotsford? Would you, would you like it if there was a person in this city who had made an oath to himself or to whatever God he worshipped and said, I will not rest I will not sleep. I will give myself no pleasure until I take that person out. That would be very disconcerting, uh, very awful to live with someone like that around. Well, there is someone like that around. Uh, he's called the evil one. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. He's called the destroyer. He wants to destroy you as a child of God. If you think about that, it can be terrifying. Until you read the catechism again which says, God, Jesus, preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. You know, your enemies can disrupt your life. They can make you experience loss of different kinds. But there's one thing your enemies can't do. They can't separate you from God. They can't do that. It's possible. Because Jesus, your Savior, preserves you. 
And finally, says the Catechism, by his Holy Spirit, last paragraph of answer one. This is the third point of the basis of our comfort. By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. You know, it can be hard to believe all the good things of the gospel. It can be hard to believe this comfort of Lord's Day 1 because the misery of life has a way of pressing itself on us. And how many of you can honestly say that in the last week, the joy of salvation for you was greater than the misery of life? Can you say that honestly? That really most of the time you were living in the joy of salvation? Or could it be that the day-to-day challenges of life and the ongoing pressures of different situations, they just compress you and, and squeeze out the joy, squeeze out the assurance? It's hard to believe the good things of the gospel. But we can believe them, and, and we shall believe them, because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, assures us of eternal life. How does the Holy Spirit do that? He does it through his word. He does it through preaching. He does it through the sacraments. He does it through Christian fellowship. He does it through catechism. He does it through your own personal Bible reading. He does it through your group Bible studies. When you come together with an open word, then you give room for the Spirit to work assurance of eternal life in you. When God took Israel out of Egypt in bondage, out of bondage in Egypt, and he brought the people to himself at Mount Sinai, Moses sang a song. And we find this song in Exodus 15. In verse 2 of Exodus 15, this is what Moses said after God brought his people to himself. Israel sang it with Moses. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. That was Moses' response and the people's response to being led out of bondage into a new life with God. And then in Isaiah 12, which we read a while ago, we find similar words. God has just given his people in Isaiah 12 these exceptional promises. Israel you are in exile. You know why you're in exile too. Because of your persistent unbelief, you're in exile. But that's not the end of the line. I'm going to take you home. I'm going to take you back. You'll be my people. And between us, there will be a bond of love. And Isaiah 12 is a response to God's promise of a renewed relationship. And this is what it says in verse 2. It sounds so much like Exodus 15. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is the song God wants you to love with this week. He wants you to wake up and just sing that song of Exodus 15, that song of Exodus 12. And I don't care how wretched your life is right now, sing it anyway. Sing that song, because it's true for you by faith. The Lord is your strength and your song. And he's become your salvation. It's a song for you to live by. And furthermore, it's a song for you to share. A song for you to share with the world. Because the last verses of Isaiah 12 remarkably speak about the mission of the church to the world. What God has done for us in bringing us home from exile is something we need to share with the world because we live in a world of displaced persons. 
Some time ago, I read a, um, a study about life in Vancouver. Just a couple years ago. It was, it was placed in the Vancouver Sun, and it became the topic of some conversation. And um, thousands of people were surveyed about their experience of life in Vancouver. And all kinds of uh, possible reasons for concern were, were um, revealed. Do you know what the biggest problem the people in Vancouver talked about? It wasn't the traffic. It wasn't the downtown east side. It wasn't addictions. The biggest problem people in Vancouver talked about was how lonely they felt. People feel really lonely. Like here you are, you're a church family. Do you realize most people don't have anything like that? They don't have a church family. They don't have a... They don't have a connection with God. They don't have a connection with God's people. Um, we live in a world full of displaced people who, who either don't know it or won't admit it, that they're far from God. Their lives are frequently controlled by evil. They're under the wrath of God. And where are they heading? Where are they heading? They're heading for an eternity without God. That's where they're heading. And in that world, you can sing... The Lord is my strength and my song, and the Lord has become my salvation, and, and the Lord will become your salvation also. Please come and join me in worshiping the Lord who specializes in bringing home those who were in exile from Him. We have a song to share. We can make known to the world the mighty deeds of God in Jesus Christ, and we can cry out in love to the world, which is what we should do. Oh, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Hold before the world the mediator, Jesus Christ. Tell the world what God has done in Jesus Christ to deal with our fundamental misery, our exile, and then say to the world, believe and be reconciled to God so that you too may live in the bond of fellowship with him. Let me end with the words we read in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Amen.